LinkedIn presents. I wonder if we ever believed the stories we told ourselves about the connection between work and poverty. You know, that people could just work their way out of poverty. And if people are poor, it's because they haven't put in the the muscle, the shoe leather, you know. And there's a part of me that thinks we didn't really believe it in our hearts of hearts. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, can we abolish poverty? I don't know about you, but I've spent much of my life living in a bubble. I grew up upper middle class. My mother was a social worker, my father a lawyer. I spent the last two decades living in New York City, where you can't help but see poverty right alongside extraordinary wealth. But to be honest, I've never really fully understood the mechanics of poverty in America, why the problem is so intractable, and why we haven't made the kinds of progress other wealthy nations have in taking care of our people. That changed, however, when I read a new book by Pulitzer Prize-winning sociologist Matthew Desmond called Poverty by America. Heralded by The New Yorker as a moral gut punch, Matt's book has really opened my eyes to why it is that so many people get left behind in America and who benefits. The story he tells is heartbreaking, inspiring, and in the end, infuriating. It's a story of greed, incompetence, obliviousness. Whose greed, you might ask? Whose obliviousness? In the end, I realized it's ours. Why can't we solve the problem? Matt's answer is unflinchingly direct. Because we don't want to. You may feel, as I have, that inequality is not your fault. We've all made small efforts to make the world better. We vote for politicians who we think will heal the nation. Many of us vote to raise our own taxes. We may make donations or give money to people we see on the street or make small gestures that cause us to feel like we're one of the good guys. But we also like our cheap stuff. Inexpensive products from Amazon that arrive at our doorstep with astonishing speed, takeout and groceries we summon with a single click. We think it's modern technology that makes these purchases so easy, so reasonably priced, so convenient. But in reality, It's the working poor who toil in the warehouses and kitchens, who drive the delivery trucks and e-bikes, often for unlivable wages. And while we may sometimes think, well, the welfare system is broken, that's the problem, we never stop to consider our complicity. Affluent families, I was surprised to learn, are the biggest beneficiaries of aid in America today. That's because of our tax breaks, like 529s and mortgage interest deductions, that add up to $1.8 trillion a year. Would we be willing to give up some of those perks so the money could help poor families instead? Put another way, we don't want our fellow citizens to suffer, but are we willing to make personal sacrifices? If we do, says Matt, we won't just ease poverty, we can abolish poverty. We have the resources, we know what to do, we just have to decide to do it. And not only because it's the right thing morally, but because abolishing poverty would benefit all of us. Our streets would be safer, our kids' futures brighter, our country would be more democratic. We know from years of data from the Gallup World Poll that people are happier in countries with less income inequality. I know all this may sound idealistic. Listen to Matt Desmond to see what you think. You may find this episode surprising. You may find it inspiring in places. But before that, you are also likely to find it infuriating. Are you ready to be infuriated? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
Matthew Desmond, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've had an extraordinary journey. Your last book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, won a Pulitzer Prize. You won a MacArthur Genius Grant. You're now a professor of sociology at Princeton, where you run the eviction lab. All of these accolades are nice, I'm, I'm sure, but I don't think it's why you wrote these books. Could you share with us your broader mission, your big picture objectives, and uh, how your last two books and your new book, Poverty by America, support that mission? Well, I want to end poverty. I want to be part of the movement that's growing around the country, not to treat it, but to cure it, not to reduce it, but to abolish it. And I say that because we can, you know, we can as a country put it into all the scarcity and deprivation in our midst. And we used to believe we could, you know, like when they launched the war on poverty in 1964, uh, it wasn't just talk, like the Johnson administration set a deadline. They were like, we're yep, going to do yep. this by 1976. We have fallen away from that kind of moral ambition and sense of urgency. And I want to be part of, of bringing that back. That objective to abolish poverty probably sounds to a lot of people like a, a pipe dream or uh, something a sort of Pollyanna-ish. Mm. But your view is this, this is something we can do. Unquestionably. So a recent study showed that if the top 1% of income earners just paid the taxes they owed, not paid more taxes, just you know stopped evading tax uh, burdens, that we as a nation could raise an additional $175 billion a year. Wow. That's almost enough to lift everyone out of poverty, every parent, every child, every grandchild. So we definitely have the resources to do this. This is not hard. Your personal journey, Matt, is kind of an extraordinary story. You grew up in Arizona. Your father was a pastor who lost his job. The bank took your family's house. And, and you write in the book, mostly I blamed dad, but a part of me also wondered why this was our country's answer when a family fell on hard times. Could you tell us a little bit about like what your childhood was like and, and when on this journey you realized that this, this question was going to be the animating force behind your, your work? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a, in a little home. I loved it. You know, it was kind of a cost $60,000, I think. And um, we never had a lot of money growing up. Things were always tight. Our gas got shut off sometimes. Um, but, uh, but we loved this home that we were in. And when the bank took it through foreclosure, it was embarrassing, to be honest. Mm. It was shame inducing. Yeah. And I, I helped my parents move out into this little tiny rental. And um, that did wiggle its way inside of me, that, that experience. And I think it, it showed just what poverty does to a family, you know, and the stress and the pressure that it put my family under. And then I, I saw kind of a poverty that was of a whole other magnitude when I moved to Milwaukee for my last book. And I lived in a mobile home park and I lived in an inner city rooming house. And I just saw a kind of deprivation that was utterly shameful and dispiriting. I mean, I saw grandmas living without heat in the winter in Wisconsin, you know, living wow. under blankets. Um, I was with this uh, sheriff eviction squad one day and they just they came upon this eviction and it was just a house full of kids. Oh my gosh. And uh, the mom had, you know, died and the kids had gone on living to the, in the house until the sheriff arrived and they evicted the kids. They put the kids out, put all their stuff out. The landlord changed the locks. They called social services and we were off to the next eviction. You know, I think seeing that kind of deprivation and scarcity and just cruelty really does drive me and does drive my, my work. Yeah. And that decision to live in in that rooming house uh, in uh, the north side of Milwaukee and to do all the research you did for Evicted, I would think that probably most people listening would be thinking to themselves, that takes a lot of courage to put yourself in those circumstances. 
both physical courage and emotional courage, right? I mean, how, how did that affect you all those months? And I guess cumulatively, it was more than a year um, of, of living in, in those places. You know, the hard part wasn't living in those places. The hard part was was leaving them, actually. I saw an incredible amount of pain and poverty, but I also saw and experienced just amazing generosity and spunk, you know, and brilliance and, and, you know, grit in the face of hardship. But, you know, I was spending time with this one family, uh, the Hingston family, and it was February and I went over to their home. February in Wisconsin, right? So it's cold. And um, they're like, Matt, my, our heat is off. Can you go down in the basement and check it out? And I have no idea what I'm doing, but like, I'm a dude, you know, I'm going to try. And um, I go down, I, I fiddle with the heater, I come back up and it was just a ruse. They had uh, bought me a birthday cake. I'm born in February and it was just a surprise. <laughs> but their heat was off, like legit off. But wow. there are these moments of beauty and generosity and a refusal to be reduced to their hardships that was incredible. And I experienced this kind of long-tailed depression after leaving Milwaukee. It wasn't necessarily because of the poverty I saw. It was that combined with this kind of new privilege that was all around me. Because I, you know, I took a job in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I think like that dissonance, you know, seeing like bottles of wine served at faculty dinners that could pay my friend's rent, you know, for a month back in Milwaukee. That was what drove my kind of existential confusion and was really affecting. Yeah. I realized that before reading your book, I don't think I understood what it's like on a daily basis to be poor in America. And I think I understand it better now. I'm going to double back and read eviction and um, I think I might read it to my my kids. Um, but one of the stories early in your new book, Poverty by America, that that really just sort of hit me in the solar plexus was the story of Julio, yeah. um, who I think was what twenty four years old, working two yeah. jobs. Could you share that story? Yeah. So Julio is um, he was from uh, Guatemala, and he was working in in the Bay Area. And he was working two full-time jobs for minimum wage. And so he'd clock in at McDonald's, he'd work the graveyard shift, and then he'd uh, he'd clock out, he'd have a, a little time to shower, and then he'd go to his next job at a temp agency and work another eight hours, and then he'd sleep as much as he could, and it was back at McDonald's. And over and over and over again, that was his life. And he told me, you know, I feel like a zombie. I, I don't have any life. But this is what he had to do to support his family that was living in a little studio apartment in one of the hottest housing markets in the country. You know, one day his little brother, who was eight at the time, went to Julio and was like, you know, how much for an hour of your time? I'd, I'd like you to play with me. Can I buy an hour of your time? And Julio looked at his little brother and just wept, just fell apart. And then shortly after that, he collapsed in the grocery store because he was just so exhausted from his job. And I, you know, the way we talk about poverty in America, it's often like a line, a poverty line. You know, mm -hmm. if you don't have enough money, you fall underneath this line. And that is just scratching the surface because poverty is not just about low incomes. It's about like chronic pain often piled on top of like toothaches because you can't afford to go to the dentist, piled on top of like debt collector harassment, piled on top of seeing your cousin get hauled away for, you know, and throw in prison for five years, piled on top of the nauseating fear of eviction, on and on it goes, you know. It's not just a line, right? It's this tight knot of agonies and humiliations. And I think realizing that should really spur us to moral action. So many Americans see the poor as being lazy or not doing what it takes to climb out of poverty. But you know, you hear the story of Julio, and, th and this—he's doing absolutely everything he can, and it's not enough. And it's just—it's just, it's just uh, so deeply affecting. Right. I wonder if we ever believed 
the stories we told ourselves about the connection between work and poverty. You know, that people could just work their way out of poverty. And if people are poor, it's because they haven't put in the the muscle, the shoe leather, you know. And there's a part of me that thinks we didn't really believe it in our hearts of hearts. It's just like something that organized us, you know, something that mm-hmm. absolved us, mm-hmm. you know, something that allowed us to move on to another conversation. Because I think when you really look hard at that question, when you look hard at Julio, you have to ask who's who's profiting from this? Who's feeding off this? And when we first address that question, we say, oh, the, the corporate guys, they're, they're really rich. You know, they're, mm-hmm. yeah. they're profiting from this. The shareholders, they're profiting. And then you say, okay, who are they? Who are the shareholders? Well, you know, half of us are invested in the stock market. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the shareholders. You know, we are the ones that like big returns, even if those come with a kind of human sacrifice, like Julio's. We're the consumers that really like low prices. And we'll punish companies if they try to raise them often. So we have to, I think, take some ownership for someone like Julio and not just put it on Congress or put it on the the super rich, although those those conversations are necessary, but also take a bit of ownership ourselves, I think. Digging into this question of, of, of what it's like to be poor in America, many things in, in your book were, were big surprises to me. One of them was that Multifamily apartments for low-income families are barely less expensive than middle-class housing. In Milwaukee, the rent for a two-bedroom apartment in the city's poorest neighborhoods is only $50 per month cheaper than the citywide median. And we're talking about places, I think, as you described them, that are are often crawling with roaches, maybe no lock on the front door, a window bashed in, backed up plumbing, the landlord doesn't answer your calls. But it's not actually inexpensive housing by comparison to much nicer apartments across town. Right. How could this be true? Why, Why is this so? Right. Another way to ask that question, right, is to say, you know, why are those families accepting those conditions? If they're not right. sure. if they're not that much cheaper, you know, why why are they living there? And I think that the plain answer is because there's no other choice. A lot of families are shut out of home ownership, not because they couldn't afford a low-cost home, but because banks just aren't interested in lending to them, you know? Banks aren't interested in in financing small dollar mortgages, you know, so you're shut out of the mortgage market, even if you could save enough for a little down payment and credit. And then you're also often shut out of public housing or any kind of affordable housing initiatives. And I think that many Americans still believe that the typical low income family lives in public housing or gets some kind of help from the government. But the opposite is true, right? Only about one in four families who qualify for any kind of housing assistance receive it. And the waiting list for public housing in some of our biggest cities isn't counted in years anymore. It's counted in decades. Wow. So I have two young kids. Like if I applied for public housing, like in Washington, D.C. today, uh, chances are I'd be a grandfather by the time my application came up for review. So what's your choice? Your choice often is to rent in the private market at the first place a landlord lets you in. And for, for most poor renting families, that means devoting at least half of their income to rent and utilities. And for one in four of those families, it means devoting 70% of their income. And so this is a core argument in the book, right? Where poverty isn't just about a lack of income or money. It's about a lack of choice and being made to pay for that lack of choice. Let's talk about banks and the relationship that poor Americans have with banks and with money. You know, starting with just the conventional banks that we all use, the fees for bounced checks, you write, I think I think it's each year add up to $11 billion in overdraft fees. Does this effectively end up becoming a tax on an $11 billion tax on the poor? Yes, it does. So only about 9% of account holders pay most of those fees, like over 80% of those fees 
So who are those unlucky 9%, right? They are customers who carried an average balance of less than $350, you know? Wow. So they're poor folks that are being made to pay for their poverty. So in 2021, the average fee for overdrawing your account was about 33 bucks. But because banks can issue multiple fees a day, like you could overdraw your account by 20 bucks and end up paying 200 bucks for it, you know? Mm-hmm. Banks don't have to do this, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they could just say, hey, Matt, you don't have that in your account. Sorry, buddy. Or they could do it once and charge you once and say, the next time you're not going to be able to overdraw. But they don't. And it's clear why they don't, you know, because it's a 11 to $12 billion profit every year. Yeah, there's no inherent $30 expense in the network's <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like, like empty bank account reply message, uh, you know, right. transaction. I mean, it, it's obviously a way of making money, and wealthier Americans benefit because banks can profit from the excessive fees paid by people with less money. Right, your free account isn't free. You know, someone pays for it, and the people that pay for it are the poorest people uh, banking you know, at your bank that, you know, our free accounts are subsidized by these overdraft fees or take credit cards. You know, a lot of us use credit cards to give us airline miles or points. And that often increases the price of goods and services by a couple of percentage points, you know? Mm-hmm. And, sure. you know, we say we can bear that because it, you know, we get, we get to take a, a trip because of it, or we get these, these bonus cash miles or whatever. But poor folks that don't have credit cards and are often cash dependent, they just, you know, they just take the upsurge without any of the benefit. And so this is another way where things that seem just, you know, innocent almost, you know, like just yeah, part yeah. of doing life do have these side effects that crash down on the lives of poor families. Your account of the payday loan companies, this was entirely new to me. I mean, I've, of course, I've driven by the stores with the, you know, cash advance signs and so on. But I was astonished by the detail around payday loans and how they work. Apparently, the APR, the annual interest rate paid for a two-week $300 cash loan can reach over 600% on an annualized basis in Texas, over 500% in Wisconsin, over 400% in California. I thought that was illegal. What's going on with these payday loan companies? Yeah, you know, it, it should be illegal. Um, it's illegal in some states, but certainly not, not all of them. So most folks take out payday loans, not even because they like an emergency at their life. They do it to pay for a basic expense, you know, the rent bills coming due, the lights or the gas are about to get shut off. That's what most payday loans are for. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that the time allotted for a single payday loan, usually a month, right, um, is just not enough to get back on your feet. And so often folks will take out loans and have to re-up them again and again and again. And that's how these payday loans can turn a, you know, a $15 profit into a, a $200 one. And is it because, you know, most people default on these loans. They take the money and run. They just can't pay it all. So you just have to, you have to pay this to, to have a business. Uh, nope, that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Most payday loans, uh, people make good on them. The reason that the interest rates are so high is because they're profitable. You know, there's just no other game in town. And so I think that this is yet another reason how, you know, when the poor find themselves over a barrel, they're made to pay for their lack of choice. It calls to mind the James Baldwin quote it's extremely expensive to be poor. Yeah. You say, the average payday loan borrower stays indebted for five months, paying $520 in fees to borrow $375. The big banks, you say, won't get into the business because it's a bad look, right? I mean, like Citibank doesn't want to be called out for making, you know, 500% annual fees off the poor. So you have a bunch of these smaller companies that are engaged in this kind of extortionate business. There's not a lot of competitive pricing issues driving down prices because people are desperate. I I, I cannot believe that this practice exists in this country. 
Right. And so there are studies that show that big banks could undercut the payday lending industry and still pull a profit if they charged um, high interest rates, but not these incredibly high interest rates that we do see from the payday lending industry. But I don't think banks want that reputational baggage. But I, I do want to point out that banks are a part of this industry, right? They are bankrolling a lot of the payday lending companies and extending them lines of credit. So it's kind of expropriators all the way down. I mean, I would love to see faith organizations actually get involved in undercutting this industry too. I mean, a lot of wow, interesting. You know, churches and synagogues, mosques, they're they're sitting on a lot of capital, especially land holdings. It wouldn't it be a beautiful thing to see faith leaders leverage their capital to really take on this kind of exclusion and this kind of exploitation that people are hitting. I also think, you know, maybe some listeners might be just like, gosh, these, you know, these guys are, they're making these huge mistakes. Wouldn't some financial literacy help, you know? And uh, I would never do that. I, you know, that's just, that seems to be. Yeah. And there's some studies that show that if you require payday loans to like clearly communicate to borrowers, potential borrowers, what they usually will pay if they take out a loan, they do take out fewer loans. You know, it's kind of like when McDonald's puts a caloric count next to the yeah, burgers yeah. and we're like, okay, that, that might not be the best decision for me. But it's also the case that they need the capital, right? It's like there's a fire and someone's like saying, you sure you want to pay for the water? And it's just like, I don't care. You know, right, I got to put right. out the fire. And I think a lot of us have been in these situations where like, we'll have a medical emergency and we just do whatever it takes, right? We're not going to, yes. we don't, we don't ask the ambulance drivers how much this is going to cost us. We're just like, let's take care of this emergency. And for so many folks down the line, that's, that's how it is. And so it's, this isn't about financial literacy. This is about expanding people's choice about how we can get them access to fair, efficient credit. So a whole, a whole nother layer of, of challenge for poor Americans is the welfare system. And, and this section of the book was all, also contained many surprises for me. So you say that we actually have a relatively large welfare system, second in size only to that in France. But that statistic is misleading because it includes homeowner subsidies, college savings plans, and other benefits that disproportionately flow to wealthier Americans. What's happening with our, with our current welfare system? So we spend so much more subsidizing affluence and guarding treasure than we do attacking poverty. And, you know, a lot of us, we struggle with seeing a tax break as a government intervention. Mm. Um, and that's on purpose, actually. You know, yeah, taxes should hurt, Ronald Reagan famously said. Mm -hmm. And so when tax season comes, we often focus on that, that pain instead of focusing on all these incredible ways the government is propping up our, our incomes because of tax breaks. So a tax break uh, costs the government money, just like any welfare program does. Mm -hmm. A tax break puts money in our pockets, just like welfare programs do, drives up the deficit. And so I do think we have to think of them as a kind of government intervention. So homeowners, for example, receive the mortgage interest deduction. They could receive that as a tax break, but the government could also just mail them the equivalent of a check, you know, which would be equivalent to the tax saving. It's the same difference. So when you look at the entire welfare state in America, you learn that the richest families among us are getting much more from the government than the poorest ones. By my calculation, every year, the average family in the top 20% of the income distribution receives about $35,000 in assistance from the government, but the bottom 20% of income earners receive only $25,000. That's a 40% that's a difference. For me, this is completely unacceptable. And it's especially enraging, frankly, when you, know, you roll out a proposal to deepen our investments in affordable housing or help people facing eviction or reduce the child poverty rate. And you're met with this question like, man, boy, how could we afford it? You know, how could we afford it? And the answer is staring us right in the face. We could afford it. 
if many of us that have plenty already took less from the government, if we reorganized our welfare system so we weren't spending so much on the rich. Coming up after the break, for decades we've heard that welfare breeds dependency. But Matt says that simply isn't true. Every year, $140 billion is unclaimed by low-income families that could have benefited. That is decidedly not a picture of low-income families knowing how to pull every nickel and dime out of the, the federal government. Stick around. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. On August 22nd, 1996, President Bill Clinton stood before a podium in the Rose Garden and announced... Today we are ending welfare as we know it. He was about to sign a sweeping piece of legislation, one that would radically transform America's welfare system. The bill was framed around personal responsibility, which today sounds like coded language, because what the legislation really sought to do was tamp down the baseless bipartisan anxiety in America that if a poor person went on welfare, they were bound to become dependent on it. After I sign my name to this bill, welfare will no longer be a political issue. The two parties cannot attack each other over it. Politicians cannot attack poor people over it. There are no encrusted habits, systems, and failures that can be laid at the foot of someone else. The bill that Clinton signed that sunny August day established time limits and work requirements for welfare recipients. It also changed how money got to poor Americans. Ever since Roosevelt's Social Security Act, the federal government had given cash aid directly to families. This new bill put a stop to that. Those funds would now be dispersed through a program called Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or TANF. Instead of giving cash directly to the people who needed it, the money would flow to the states. And those states, as my guest Matthew Desmond writes in his new book, Poverty by America, came up with, quote, rather creative ways to spend TANF dollars, many of which don't benefit poor people at all. For every dollar that's budgeted for cash welfare, only 22 cents is realized as dollars in hand aid to poor families. So where does the other money go? You know, uh, Oklahoma uh, spent millions of dollars on a marriage initiative to provide marital counseling with TANF funds. Uh, Arizona uses welfare dollars to pay for abstinence-only sex ed. Pennsylvania diverted funds for anti-abortion crisis centers. Maine supported a Christian summer camp. On and on it goes. You know, and so I think that is, is an incredibly important realization. And there's also a realization that states actually don't have to spend these TANF dollars every year. And many states don't. And this isn't just a red state thing. You know, Hawaii is sitting on a huge cache of unused TANF dollars, enough to give every poor kid in the state $10,000. And just sitting on it, 
you know, just not letting it go out. So I think that, you know, this is a real, real case where a dollar in the budget doesn't mean a dollar in someone's pocket. You said in 2020 in Tennessee, which has one of the highest child poverty rates in the country, Tennessee left 790 million in TANF money unspent. Why do they do this? Do they do they have yeah. uh, do they think they're going to have some other way to spend the money the following year? What, what's the logic? So I don't know, but I don't think it's a real stretch of the imagination to infer from this that you know the folks that are running this program in Tennessee have shown a, a callousness and a, and a disregard for the poorest people under their their purview. It's astonishing to me to imagine millions and millions of dollars sitting there doing nothing while so many children languish in poverty in that state. And on top of all of this, low-income Americans are leaving a huge amount of aid unclaimed. So this, mm -hmm. is, a, this is a whole nother layer of the problem. The total, I think, is $142 billion per year of unused or unclaimed aid, which is particularly striking because there's this perception people have that uh, of welfare dependence, right? That, that welfare creates this sort of dependent class. But in fact, as you point out, what we see is welfare avoidance. Right. And, you know, there's no official statistic on how much money is left on the table. But if you add up some of these major programs like I did, you realize that Every year, $140 billion is unclaimed by low-income families that could have benefited. That, that is decidedly not a picture of welfare dependency. That is decidedly not a picture of low-income families knowing how to pull every nickel and dime you know, out of the, the federal government. It's striking to me in a country that is the world leader in marketing things to people. You know, is the world leader in delivering goods to your doorstep in a blink of an eye like magic yeah. that we do such an embarrassingly bad job of advertising these programs to low-income families, making it easy for those families to apply, and making sure the programs are delivered efficiently and powerfully. Or, or potentially automating it in some way. I mean, I was I was struck mm -hmm. by your, your coverage of, uh, you talk about how in many European countries, tax is automatically calculated by the government. I think this is true in, in Great Britain and other other countries where the government will basically, you know, say, okay, well here here's what you here's what you owe based based on your income, et cetera. If if you want to push back or contest this, you can do so, but you know, you, or you can just hit, you know, one click and pay your taxes. And this results no doubt in much uh, much less tax evasion, <laughs> right? And one right. wonders if you couldn't do the reverse with relief for poor families, yeah. right? To have a kind of automated system. No, that's exactly right. And I think that if we had such a system here, it would ensure that families got the benefits they needed, especially those issued through the tax code, but also that families that were in the upper echelons of our society paid the taxes that they owe and they should. And so those two things make complete sense to me. Yeah. Let's talk about about the complicity of the rest of us. And this th this really hit home for me because I, you know, like like I think so many people listening have probably had a sense that we can do better. I felt guilty for years about people in this country and obviously other countries, uh, you know, uh, living in 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 conditions like these. But I haven't seen myself as directly benefiting from the exploitation of the poor in America until reading your book. And this is something that you really, you really bring home. And I guess maybe one of the most obvious places to start, which you alluded to earlier, is that we all love cheap stuff. You know, a couple of days ago, I bought a sleep mask on Amazon. It was $7 and it arrived the next day. Right. How can that happen? Right. It just seems too, too inexpensive and efficient. Right. Um, and, and I think right. The answer is that there are people who are inadequately compensated that are part of what makes my seven dollars sleeping mask available to me in twenty four hours. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that the reason I I point out these connections in the book is is not necessarily to make us feel guilty, but 
to reveal the ways that we are connected to the problem and connected to the solution. And, you know, it's often very hard to know what companies are doing right by their workers, right? Um, we kind of know what companies are, are green nowadays. You know, we even know what companies are kind of Republican or Democrat, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're often shopping according to our politics and often we're shopping according to our environmental values, but we're often not shopping or investing according to our economic justice values. And I would like to see us do more of that. And I would like to see companies brag, frankly, about when they're doing right by their workers. You know, I I don't want to just know if your bottle is 100% recycled. I want to know if a union person made it. I was just in London and there's some signs on the windows of London that say, you know, this store pays a living wage. And it was really striking to me because you know, you go out into your independent shops and often you'll see like a, a Black Lives Matter sticker or a trans right flag. And, you know, I, I think those do a lot and are important, but you often have no idea how much the workers are making. You have no idea if, you know, do they do they give paid sick leave at the store or not? And so I, I'd love to see more of that. And look, this book isn't naive. It doesn't, you know, I don't think we can solve climate change by air drying our laundry. And I don't think that we're going to solve poverty by us shopping or investing differently. But I think as more and more of us do that, it builds a political will and it could put upward pressure on our political leaders and our corporate leaders and signal that we demand something different. And the question you keep asking in this book is who is benefiting? We should keep asking. And the answer when you look, when you really dig in is we are benefiting. How are we benefiting? We've talked about the hidden costs of cheap stuff. Um, it seems like low taxes, tax credits for home buyers. This is one of the biggest ways in which we benefit that, that's maybe not obvious to us. That's right. And a lot of times when we think about the welfare state, we think about public housing, food stamps, things like that. But we also should think about tax savings, like the savings we get often if we can save for college through 529 plans or mm-hmm. the savings we get from deducting the interest of our mortgage from our tax bill. And if you add up all the tax breaks that accrue in America, they add up to about $1.8 trillion a year. That's like double our military spending. And most of those benefits accrue to wealthy Americans. And so if you just look at, at housing, you know, the mortgage interest deduction and other home owner subsidies, that cost the government over $190 billion a year. But we only spend about $50 billion a year on direct housing assistance to the needy, you know, public mm. housing, wow. Section 8, things like that. Most of the mortgage interest deduction goes to families with six figure incomes. Most white families own their home and are eligible for this cutout, but most Black and Latinx families do not because of our legacy of of housing discrimination. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me. You talk about college loans as, to some degree, a a subsidy for the wealthy, although I've I've always thought of college loans as, as a force for good. In what way are they not benefiting the poor? Well, it, it could be both, right? I mean, but um, the only usually when we think of college loans, we think of something that just comes from a bank, right? But like the only reason like a bank gives like an 18-year-old $50,000 with no collateral and no job is because the government guarantees it, you know, subsidizes mm-hmm. it, agrees to pay part of it. And so, you know, if you do have a giant section of the population that that isn't going to college, right? They can't benefit from something like that. Uh, it, it is a benefit that's not reaching the very poorest families in America. Another example would be like the 529 college savings plan. Mm-hmm. You know, children from rich families often aren't taking out student loans, but they often do benefit from 529 savings plans that are tax shelters. Those cost the government billions and billions of dollars a year too. And so I think that that should be included in our calculation of what what a welfare program is. And, you know, this really matters. You know, another area where I have felt in recent years complicit in some of the problems with poverty in our country is with the ways in which 
I and many people I know have benefited from the, the growth of the stock market in the last 10 or 20 years. One of my favorite companies is Apple, right? I love Apple products, but it's also not lost on me that, you know, Apple has a something like a 35% profit margin and takes all these hundreds of billions of dollars and applies it to stock buybacks and dividends for investors. And who are those investors? Those investors are disproportionately the very wealthiest people in the country. Right. So, so, right. so you're taking, you're making, you know, thirty a thirty five percent, forty percent profit margin on products that are that are bought by people all over the world, and then shunting all those profits to the wealthy. I mean, it, it really is a uh, a redistribution of wealth from the poor to the wealthy. It seems to me, and it doesn't have to be that way. You know, a lot of us, you know, we're investing with an eye toward green energy. You know, we're saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to divest yeah. from fossil fuels. I'm going to push my university to divest from fossil fuels. I'm going to I'm going to push my state pension fan to divest from fossil fuels. And I applaud those moves, obviously. But we're often not doing that with an eye toward the poor. And I think we should. You know, we should look at our own portfolios. We should look at the portfolios of our, our states and our universities and our churches and, and ask, you know, how are they investing in poverty and, and, how, and how can we move that? That's that's not the end-all be-all solution, right? But it is part of it. It is part of making yes. this problem personal, owning it, taking responsibility mm -hmm. for it. And I think that can build to something. Towards this end of, of abolishing poverty, which is, which is uh, an amazing goal, and, and I think it's great that you, that you call it out as emphatically as you do, which you've identified as something that we can accomplish in our lifetime. Like this is this is a solvable problem. You know, talking concretely about things that we can do and need to do. I'm reminded of actually the relatively happy ending of your story of of Julio at the beginning of the show, mm, um, yes. who participates in protests about minimum wage and actually benefits from an increase in the minimum wage and is able to work one job instead of two jobs, I think, right? He's able to work a lot less. And, you know, the, when the minimum wage was raised in his town, he just, you know, it's like that scene in Sylvia Plath's bell jar, you know, where the bell jar lifts and she finally gets a breath of fresh air, you know? He's mm. able to sleep a little more. He's able to play with his brother. He eats better. You know, he, he walks in the park, he lives, you know, he lives. And I think that when you look at the research on what happens when you raise the minimum wage, people stop smoking. They smoke less. People's health improves. Cases of child neglect go down. There's massive evidence about like the impact on premature births and infant health improves when wages go up. And so what we're doing when we're robbing people like Julio of these fair living wages is we're really robbing them of, of health and happiness and, of, and life itself. And we're doing it unnecessarily, right? And I think that's really where, where the shame comes in. We can absolutely abolish poverty in this country. We have the means to do so and the know-how. Look at COVID. Uh, the expanded child tax credit, which provided checks to families that have kids that fell below a certain income level, you know, that cut child poverty almost in half in six months, you know, wow. six months. But then we have this kind of blowback. We have this congressional blowback about whew, how are we going to afford it? How are we going to afford it? And, you know, to me, it's just such a ridiculous question in this land of dollars. You know, if we just made sure the richest among us paid the taxes they owed, we could reinstate the child tax credit and have money left over. So, yeah, I mean, I think poverty abolitionism is something to demand. And mm. not only because it's well within our grasp, but because, you know, it's just the right thing to do. You know, and you point out that there's actually more bipartisan support for many of these measures than people realize, right? You, you say a majority of American support a $15 federal minimum wage. A majority believe the rich aren't paying their fair share in taxes, that the economy is benefiting the rich and harming the poor. We have not only the, the wealth that's necessary to abolish poverty, but there's more bipartisan support for many of these measures than, than is broadly realized, I think. 
Yeah, totally. And, you know, when I was uh, going around the country talking about my last book, Evicted, I gave this talk in Kansas City. And um, an older white gentleman in the front row, a blue blazer, crossed arms. And he got to the microphone first after the talk. And he said, you know what? These people don't deserve anything from us. All they deserve is to be sterilized. And he sat down. Oh, my God. And it was this like shocking statement. But looking looking back on that moment, one thing that's interesting to me is how rare a statement like that was actually on the road. Interesting. And, um, yeah. yeah, I thought when I published my last book, I would just be same old questions about welfare, dependency, and family, and you know the old debate. But the country is ready for a new conversation. It really is, and the country, you know, is is ready to move on. I mean. Uh, you know, recent studies show that most Americans now, most Democrats and most Republicans, understand poverty as a result of unfair circumstances, not a moral mm -hmm. failing, you know? And now we need to take the next step. You know, the next step is to consider, you know, our moral failing, you know, our public virtue fail, you know, that allows all this poverty amongst all this wealth. I think that's that's kind of the next step to take. What does that next step look like at both the political and personal levels? Matt and I talk specifics right after the break. So we can close tax evasion loopholes. We can raise the minimum wage and overdraft fees, tighten regulation on payday lenders? Should we be doing something to, to repeal or change TANF so that cash flows directly to, to poor people who, who need it to properly feed their kids and house them? I would be for that. And I also would be for just deepening our investments in programs that work. I mean, if you look at the research on public housing, for example, the kids that grow up in public housing, they do much better later on in life than their peers who are exposed to rent fluctuations and evictions in the private market. But, you know, only one in four families that qualify for any kind of a housing assistance have access to it. So let's deepen our investment in those programs that really, really do work already. How do you feel, Matt, about universal basic income? How do you see that as, as fitting into our future? This is my take on UBI. Some of the estimates of the cost of UBI are really high. And I think that the spirit of UBI in the sense of like, let's do something big and ambitious and let's do something that's not divisive is something that I can really get behind. Um, but I think we can do something like that, like a bigger tent targeting without something that's truly universal. I also think a program like UBI is maybe a first step, not the last step in a way. Mm -hmm. you know. And the book really tries to make a case that, yeah, we need these deeper kind of investments in ending poverty, but we also need to confront exploitation. you know, And we also need to confront segregation. And so a UBI initiative kind of takes that first step, but it doesn't have anything to say about the second and third step. And I think they, they are crucial, especially exploitation. Because that is basically a call for building out worker power and providing families more choice about where they live and how they access their money and their credit. And if we have interventions without addressing exploitation, the power of those interventions could get watered down really quickly. So one quick study is from the Federal Reserve Bank of Philly shows that when cities raise the minimum wage, families have an easier time paying the rent. But over time, those rents kind of start to catch up with those raise bumps and it dilutes the, the policy. So we certainly need things that raise the floor, but we also need policies that empower the poor. What do you think we can do, Matt, on, on a personal level? You know, one of the things that's frustrating as an individual navigating the world is you don't always feel like you can you know, make the difference you'd like to make. I'm sure people ask you this question, like, what can I do beyond trying to vote for the right candidates and 
and maybe maybe we vote with our wallets, uh, support the right companies. How do you, how do you think about what we can do personally? I think that's a great place to start. We can vote with our wallets. We can consult organizations like B Corps or Union Plus that curate lists of companies that are doing right by their workers. We could push for tax fairness. You know, I would love to see those of us that receive like the mortgage interest deduction or 529 savings plans start giving that money away and writing to Congress and saying, look, I don't want this benefit. I don't need this benefit. I want you to wind this down and redirect the savings to fighting poverty. I would love more and more of us to do that. You know, when we talk about ending segregation, that can often feel like, well, what does that mean in my daily life? Well, that often means, you know, when you hear about a housing proposal in your community, you know, inviting your neighbors over saying, look, you know, I think we should do this. This is who we are. This is who I want us to be. You know, it means sharing research that shows that smartly designed affordable housing doesn't have an effect on property values. And it means doing that really brave thing often, which is going to that Tuesday night zoning board meeting and standing up and saying, look, I support this initiative. I refuse mm. to be a segregationist. I want to give other kids opportunities my kids have had in this school system, in this neighborhood, build this thing. And so a lot of these policies that we talk about when we talk about ending poverty, they can feel very far away, you know, and kind of someone else's mm -hmm. problem. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, I wish Congress was better aligned. Oh, I wish we took the house, you know, but we just have to start making it our problem now and not wait around for someone else to act. I love this passage you have towards the end of the book where you say, imagine what your life would be like if we abolished poverty. What's it going to feel like? If you are a person in poverty, it feels like a whole other existence, right? It's literally more life. You know, between 2001 and 2014, the richest women gained three years of life, and the poorest women, they gained 15 days. So abolishing poverty is literally more life. Wow. It's more security for your kids. It's more safety. It's less humiliation. It's less disempowerment. It's less exploitation. So if you're someone that's on the on the spear end of poverty, you know, it's a wholly different existence. Now, what about the rest of us? You know, what about those of us who are secure in, in our money? An America without poverty is better for us too. It's an America where you don't have to wonder, what's going to happen to my kids? Are they going to, are they going to fall all the way down if we get in a car accident or, you know, they don't get into the right school? We give up that worry. It's an America where you don't feel that ickiness, that malaise, that emotional violence that we feel when we know we're complicit in, in these systems. It's literally a more democratic society because folks who are poor often have a hard time voting. Uh, their lives are often just you know captured by more important means. So if we want a, a bigger civic nation, a more democratic nation, we need to have less poverty. And it's America that I think is just fuller and happier and freer. You know, some of the happiest places and spaces I've been in is, is just alongside people that are fighting poverty, people that are looking at hard in the face that know what they're up against, but it's a warm hearted, wonderful, joyous place to be. And so another way that folks might want to get involved in this is just by joining an anti-poverty organization. You know, if you want more meaning in your life, more fun, join an anti-poverty organization. And if you don't know how to do that, you can go to a website that I just launched called endpovertyusa.org. And you can see folks that are putting in the work on the national level and also in your state. Well, Matt, your new book, Poverty by America, is, is going to help to get us to this uh, post-poverty world that you're describing. And uh, I just, I was so moved by the book and by your your work and uh and so thank you thank you for doing what you do thank you for the book and um thank you for taking time to be with us today i really enjoyed this conversation thank you so much for for reading so so clearly and and carefully and just yeah i i really enjoyed being there with you so thank you that was matthew desmond author of poverty by America, which was published this week. It's a phenomenal read. I really encourage you to go out and buy a copy. 
If you enjoyed our conversation, there are two book bites in the Next Big Idea app that I think you might like. One is called The Toolbox, Strategies for Crafting Social Impact, and it's by Jacob Harold, the former CEO of GuideStar. The other is Viral Justice, How We Grow the World We Want by Ruha Benjamin. She's the founding director of the Just Data Lab at Princeton, which is focused on the intersection of race, justice, and technology. To hear these and hundreds of other book bites, download the Next Big Idea app today. This episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. The Next Big Idea is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. See you next week.